Section 8 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 8, Volume 1, Chapter 3. On the Way to the South, Part 2. We had been lucky with wind and weather at the commencement of our Atlantic cruise in the early summer. This time we were, if possible, even more favored. It was perfectly calm when we sailed, and the North Sea lay perfectly calm for several days after. What we had to do now was to become familiar with and used to all these dogs, and this was enormously facilitated by the fact that for the first week we experienced nothing but fine weather. Before we sailed there was no lack of all kinds of prophecies of the evil that would befall us with our dogs. We heard a number of these predictions. Presumably a great many more were whispered about, but did not reach our ears. The unfortunate beasts were to fare terribly badly. The heat of the tropics would make short work of the greater part of them. If any were left, they would have but a miserable respite before being washed overboard or drowned in the seas that would come on deck in the west wind belt. To keep them alive with a few bits of dried fish was an impossibility, etc. As everyone knows, all these predictions were very far from being fulfilled. The exact opposite happened. Since then I expect most of us who made the trip have been asked the question, was not that voyage to the south an excessively wearisome and tedious business? Didn't you get sick of all those dogs? How on earth did you manage to keep them alive? It goes without saying that a five months voyage in such waters as we were navigating must necessarily present a good deal of monotony. How much will depend on what resources one has for providing occupation. In this respect, we had in these very dogs just what was wanted. No doubt it was work that very often called for the exercise of patience, Nevertheless, like any other work, it furnished diversion and amusement. And so much the more, since we here had to deal with living creatures that had sense enough fully to appreciate and reciprocate in their own way any advance that was made to them. From the very first I tried in every way to insist upon the paramount importance to our whole enterprise of getting our draft animals successfully conveyed to our destination. If we had any watchword at this time it was, dogs first and dogs all the time. The result speaks best for the way in which this watchword was followed. The following was the arrangement we made. The dogs, who at first were always tied up on the same spot, were divided into parties of ten. To each party one or two keepers were assigned, with full responsibility for their animals and their treatment. For my own share I took the fourteen that lived on the bridge. Feeding the animals was a maneuver that required the presence of all hands on deck. It therefore took place when the watch was changed. The arctic dog's greatest enjoyment in life is putting away his food. It may safely be asserted that the way to his heart lies through his dish of meat. We acted on this principle, and the result did not disappoint us. After the lapse of a few days, the different squads were the best of friends with their respective keepers. As may be supposed, it was not altogether to the taste of the dogs to stand chained up all the time. Their temperament is far too lively for that. We would gladly have allowed them the pleasure of running about and thus getting healthy exercise, but for the present we dared not run the risk of letting the whole pack loose. A little more education was required first. It was easy enough to win their affection, to provide them with a good education was of course a more difficult matter. It was quite touching to see their joy and gratitude when one gave up a little time to their entertainment. One's first meeting with them, in the morning, was specially cordial. Their feelings were then apt to find vent in a chorus of joyful howls. This was called forth by the very sight of their masters, but they asked more than that. They were not satisfied until we had gone round, patting and talking to every one. If by chance one was so careless as to miss a dog, he at once showed the most unmistakable signs of disappointment. 
there can hardly be an animal that is capable of expressing its feelings to the same extent as the dog joy sorrow gratitude scruples of conscience all are reflected as plainly as could be desired in his behavior and above all in his eyes we human beings are apt to cherish the conviction that we have a monopoly of what is called a living soul the eyes it is said are the mirror of this soul that is all right enough but now take a look at a dog's eyes study them attentively how often do we see something human in their expression the same variations that we meet with in human eyes this at all events is something that strikingly resembles soul we will leave the question open for those who are interested in its solution and will here only mention another point which seems to show that a dog is something more than a mere machine of flesh and blood his pronounced individuality there were about a hundred dogs on board the fram gradually as we got to know each one of them by daily intercourse they each revealed some characteristic trait some peculiarity hardly two of them were alike either in disposition or in appearance to an observant eye there was here ample opportunity for the most amusing exercise if now and then one grew a little tired of one's fellow men which i must admit seldom happened there was as a rule diversion to be found in the society of the animals i say as a rule there were of course exceptions it was not an unmixed pleasure having the whole deck full of dogs for all those months our patience was severely tested many a time but in spite of all the trouble and inconvenience to which the transport of the dogs necessarily gave rise i am certainly right in saying that these months of sea voyage would have seemed far more monotonous and tedious if we had been without our passengers during the first four or five days we had now been making our way towards the straits of dover and the hope began to dawn within us that this time at last we should slip through without any great difficulty there had been five days of absolute calm why should it not last out the week but it did not as we passed the lightship at the western end of the Goodwins, the fine weather left us, and in its place came the southwest wind with rain, fog, and foul weather in its train. In the course of half an hour it became so thick that it was impossible to see more than two or three ships' lengths ahead, but if we could see nothing we heard all the more. The ceaseless shrieks of many steam-whistles and sirens told us only too plainly what a crowd of vessels we were in. It was not exactly a pleasant situation our excellent ship had many good points but they did not prevent her from being extraordinarily slow and awkward in turning this is an element of great danger in these waters it must be remembered that a possible accident whether our own fault or not would to us be absolutely fatal we had so little time to spare that the resulting delay might ruin the whole enterprise an ordinary trading vessel can take the risk by careful manoeuvring a skipper can almost always keep out of the way Collisions are, as a rule, the result of rashness or carelessness on one side or another. The rash one has to pay. The careful one may perhaps make money out of it. Carefulness on our part was a matter of course. It would have been a poor consolation to us if another ship had had to pay for her carelessness. We could not take that risk. Therefore, little as we liked doing so, we put into the downs and anchored there. Right opposite to us, we had the town of Deal, then in the height of its season. The only amusement we had was to observe all these apparently unconcerned people who passed their time in bathing or walking about the white inviting sands. They had no need to worry themselves much about what quarter the wind blew from. Our only wish was that it would veer or in any case drop. Our communication with the land was limited to sending ashore telegrams and letters for home. By the next morning our patience was already quite exhausted, but not so with the southwester. It kept going as steadily as ever but it was clear weather, and therefore we decided at once to make an attempt to get to the west. There was nothing to be done but to have recourse to the ancient method of beating. We cleared one point, and then another, but more than that we could not manage for the time being. We took one bearing after another. No, there was no visible progress. 
Off Dungeness we had to anchor again, and once more console ourselves with the much-vaunted balm of patience. This time we escaped with passing the night there. The wind now thought fit to veer sufficiently to let us get out at daybreak, but it was still a contrary wind, and we had to beat almost all the way down the English Channel. A whole week was spent in doing these three hundred miles. That was rather hard, considering the distance we had to go. I fancy most of us gave a good sigh of relief when at last we were clear of the Sicily Isles. The everlasting southwest wind was still blowing, but that did not matter so much now. The main thing was that we found ourselves in open sea, with the whole Atlantic before us. Perhaps one must have sailed in the Fram to be fully able to understand what a blessing it was to feel ourselves altogether clear of the surrounding land and the many sailing ships in the channel, to say nothing of constantly working the ship with a deck swarming with dogs. On our first voyage through the channel in June, we had caught two or three carrier pigeons, which had come to rest in the rigging utterly tired out. On the approach of darkness we were able to get hold of them without difficulty. Their numbers and marks were noted, and after they had been taken care of for a couple of days and had recovered their strength, we let them go. They circled once or twice round the mastheads, and then made for the English coast. I think this episode led to our taking a few carrier pigeons with us when we left Christiansland. Lieutenant Nilsen, as a former owner of pigeons, was to take charge of them. Then a nice house was made for them, and the pigeons lived happily in their new abode on the top of the whaleboat amidships. Now in some way or other the second-in-command found out that the circulation of air in the pigeon-house was faulty. To remedy this defect, he one day set the door a little ajar. Air certainly got into the house, but the pigeons came out. A joker, on discovering that the birds had flown, wrote up to let in big letters on the wall of the pigeon-house. The second-in-command was not in a very gentle frame of mind that day. As far as I know, the escape took place in the channel. The pigeons found their way home to Norway. The Bay of Biscay has bad name among seamen, and it fully deserves it. That tempestuous corner of the sea conceals forever in its depths so many a stout ship and her crew. We, for our part, however, had good hopes of escaping unharmed, considering the time of year, and our hopes were fulfilled. We had better luck than we dared to anticipate. Our stubborn opponent, the southwest wind, got tired at last of trying to stop our progress. It was no use. We went slowly, it was true, but still we got along. Of the meteorological lessons of our youth, we especially recalled at that moment the frequent northerly winds off the coast of Portugal, and as a pleasant surprise we already had them far up in the bay. This was an agreeable change after all our close-hauled tacking in the channel. The north wind held almost as bravely as the southwest had done before, and at what was to our ideas quite a respectable rate, we went southward day after day towards the fine weather zone, where we could be sure of a fair wind, and where a sailor's life is, as a rule, a pleasant one. For that matter, as far as seamanship was concerned, our work had gone on smoothly enough even during these first difficult weeks. There were always willing and practiced hands enough for what was wanted, even though the work to be done was frequently of a not very pleasant kind. Take washing decks, for instance. Every seaman will have something to say about what it is like on board ships that carry live animals, especially when these are carried on deck, in the way of all work that has to be done. I have always held the opinion that a polar ship ought not, any more than any other vessel, to be a wholesale establishment for dirt and filth, however many dogs there may be on board. On the contrary, I should say that on voyages of this kind, it is more than ever vitally necessary to keep one's surroundings as clean and sweet as possible. The important thing is to get rid of anything that may have a demoralizing and depressing effect. The influence of uncleanliness in this way is so well known that it is needless to preach about it here. 
My views were shared by everyone on board the Fram, and everything was done to act in accordance with them, in spite of what may be considered great difficulties. Twice a day the whole deck was thoroughly washed down, besides all the extra turns at odd times with bucket and scrubber. At least once a week the whole of the loose deck was taken up, and each separate part of it thoroughly washed until it was clean as when it was laid down at Christiansland. This was a labor that required great patience and perseverance on the part of those who had to perform it, but I never saw any shortcomings. Let's just see and get it clean, they said. At night, when it was not always easy to see what one was doing, it might often happen that one heard some more or less heated exclamations from those who had to handle coils of rope in working the ship. I need not hint more explicitly at the cause of them, if it is remembered that there were dogs lying about everywhere, who had eaten and drunk well in the course of the day. But after a time the oaths gave way to jokes. There is nothing in the world that custom does not help us to get over. It is the universal practice on board ship to divide the day and night into watches of four hours. The two watches into which the crew is divided relieve each other every four hours, but on vessels that sail to the Arctic Ocean it is customary to have watches of six hours. We adopted the latter plan, which, on its being put to the vote, proved to have a compact majority in its favor. By this arrangement of watches we only had to turn out twice in the course of twenty-four hours, and the watch below had had a proper sleep whenever it turned out. If one has to eat, smoke, and perhaps chat a little during four hours' watch below, it does not leave much time for sleeping, and if there should be a call for all hands on deck it means no sleep at all. To cope with the work of the engine room, we had from the beginning the two engineers, Sundbeck and Nodvet. They took watch and watch, four hours each, when the motor was in use for a long time continuously. This was a rather severe duty, and on the whole it was just as well to have a man in reserve. I therefore decided to have a third man trained as reserve engineer. Christensen applied for this post, and it may be said in his praise that he accomplished the change remarkably well. Thorough deckhand as he was, there might have been reason to fear that he would repent of the transfer, but no, he quickly became life and soul an engineer. This did not prevent our seeing him on deck many a time during the passage through the west wind belt when there was need of a good man during a gale. The motor, which during the Atlantic cruise had been a constant source of uneasiness and anxiety, regained our entire confidence under Sunbeck's capable command. It hummed so that it was a pleasure to hear it. To judge from the sound of the engine room, one would have thought the Fram was moving through the water with the speed of a torpedo boat. If this was not the case, the engine was not to blame. Possibly the screw had a share of it. The latter ought probably to have been somewhat larger, though experts are not agreed about this. In any case, there was something radically wrong with our propeller. Whenever there was a little seaway, it was apt to work loose in the brasses. This disadvantage is a very common occurrence in vessels which have to be fitted with lifting propellers on account of the ice, and we did not escape it. The only remedy was to lift the whole propeller frame and renew the brasses, an extremely difficult work when it had to be done in the open sea and on as lively a ship as the Fram. Day by day we had the satisfaction of seeing how the dogs found themselves more and more at home on board. Perhaps even among ourselves there were one or two who had felt some doubt at first of what the solution of the dog question would be, but in any case all such doubts were soon swept away. Even at an early stage of the voyage we had every reason to hope that we should land our animals safe and sound. What we had to see in the first place was to let them have as much and as good food as circumstances permitted. As already mentioned, we had provided ourselves with dried fish for their consumption. Eskimo dogs do not suffer very greatly from daintiness, but an exclusive diet of dried fish would seem rather monotonous in the long run, even to their appetites and a certain addition of fatty substances was necessary, otherwise we should have some trouble with them. We had on board several great barrels of tallow or fat, 
but our store was not so large that we did not have to economize. In order to make the supply of fat last, and at the same time to induce our boarders to take as much dried fish as possible, we invented a mixture which was called by a sailor's term, denja. This must not be confused with thrashing, which was also served out liberally from time to time, but the denja was more in demand. It consisted of a mixture of chopped up fish, tallow, and maize meal, all boiled together into a sort of porridge. This dish was served three times a week, and the dogs were simply mad for it. They very soon learned to keep count of the days when this mess was to be expected, and as soon as they heard the rattling of the tin dishes in which separate portions were carried round, they set up such a noise that it was impossible to hear oneself speak. Both the preparation and the serving out of this extra ration were at times rather troublesome, but it was well worth it. It is quite certain that our complement of dogs would have made a poor show on arrival at the Bay of Wales if we had shrunk from the trouble. The dried fish was not nearly so popular as the denja, but to make up for that there was plenty of it. Not that the dogs themselves ever thought they could have enough. Indeed, they were always stealing from their neighbors, perhaps more for the sake of the sport than for anything else. In any case, as sport was extremely popular, and it took many a good hiding to get the rascals to understand that it could not be allowed. I'm afraid, though, that they kept up their thieving even after they knew very well that it was wrong. The habit was too old to be corrected. Another habit, and a very bad one, that these Eskimo dogs have fallen into in the course of ages, and of which we tried to break them, at all events during the sea voyage, is their tendency to hold howling concerts. What the real meaning of these performances may be, whether they are a pastime or an expression of gratification or the reverse, we could never decide to our satisfaction. They began suddenly and without warning. The whole pack might be lying perfectly still and quiet when a single individual, who for that occasion had taken upon himself the part of leader of the chorus, would set up a long blood-curdling yowl. If they were left to themselves, it was not long before the whole pack joined in, and this infernal din was kept going at full steam for two or three minutes. The only amusing thing about the entertainment was its conclusion. They all stopped short at the same instant, just as a well-trained chorus obeys the baton of its conductor. Those of us, however, who happened to be in our bunks, found nothing at all amusing in these concerts, either in the finale or anything else, for they were calculated to tear the soundest sleeper from his slumbers. But if only one took care to stop the leader in his efforts, the whole affair was nipped in the bud, and we usually succeeded in doing this. If there were some who at first were anxious about their night's rest, these fears were soon dispersed. On leaving Norway we had ninety-seven dogs in all, and of these no less than ten were bitches. This fact justified us in expecting an increase of the canine population on our voyage to the south, and our expectations were very soon fulfilled. The first happy event occurred when we had been no more than three weeks at sea. An incident of this kind may seem, in itself, of no great importance. To us, living under conditions in which one day was almost exactly like another, it was more than enough to be an object of the greatest interest. Therefore, when the report went round that Camilla had got four shapely youngsters, there was general rejoicing. Two of the pups, who happened to be of the male sex, were allowed to live. The females were sent out of this world long before their eyes were opened to its joys and sorrows. It might be thought that seeing we had nearly a hundred grown-up dogs on board, there would be little opportunity for looking after puppies. That this was done, nevertheless, with all the care that could be wished, is due in the first instance to the touching affection of the second-in-command for the little ones. From the very first moment he was their avowed protector. Gradually, as the numbers increased, there was a difficulty in finding room on the already well-occupied deck. I'll take them in my bunk, said the second-in-command. It did not come to that, but if it had been necessary he would certainly have done so. 
the example was catching later on when the little chaps were weaned and had begun to take other nourishment one might see regularly and after every meal one after another of the crew coming on deck with some carefully scrapped up bits of food on his plate the little hungry mouths were to have what was left over something more than patience and punctual performance of duty is displayed in such things as those of which i have been speaking it is love of and a living interest in one's work from what i saw and heard every day i was certain that these necessary incentives were present although as far as most of the men were concerned our object was still the protracted one of drifting for years in the arctic ice the extension of the plan the far more imminent battle with the ice floes of the south was still undreamt of by the majority of the ship's company i considered it necessary to keep it to myself for a little while yet until our departure from the port we were now making for Funchal, madeira it may possibly appear to many people that i was running a pretty big risk in thus putting off till the last moment the duty of informing my comrades of the very considerable detour we were to make suppose some or perhaps all of them had objected it must be admitted that it was a big risk but there were so many risks that had to be taken at that time however as i got to know each man during these first few weeks of our long voyage i soon arrived at the conviction that there was nobody on board the fram who would try to put difficulties in the way on the contrary i had more and more reason to hope that they would all receive the news with joy when they heard it for then their whole prospect would be so different everything had gone with surprising ease up to this time in future it would go even better it was not without a certain longing that i looked forward to our arrival at madeira it would be grand to be able to speak out no doubt the others who knew of the plan were equally eager secrets are neither amusing nor easy to carry about least of all on board a ship where one has to live at such close quarters as we had we were chatting together every day of course and the uninitiated could not be deterred from leading the conversation round to the ugly difficulties that would embitter our lives and hinder our progress when rounding the horn it was likely enough that we should manage to bring the dogs safely through the tropics once but whether we should succeed in doing so twice was more doubtful and so on to infinity it is easier to imagine than to describe how awkward all this was and how cunningly one had to choose one's words to avoid saying too much among inexperienced men there would have been no great difficulty but it must be remembered that on the fram pretty nearly every second man had spent years of his life in polar voyages a single slight hint to them would have been enough to expose the whole plan that neither those on board nor anyone else discovered it prematurely can only be explained by its being so obvious our ship was a good deal too dependent on wind and weather to enable us to make any accurate estimate of the time our voyage would occupy especially as regards those latitudes in which the winds are variable the estimate for the whole voyage was based on an average speed of four knots and at this very modest rate as it may seem we ought to arrive at the ice barrier about the middle of january nineteen eleven as will be seen later this was realized with remarkable exactness for reaching madeira we had allowed a month as a reasonable time we did a good deal better than this as we were able to leave funchal a month to the day after our departure from christiansland we were always ready to forgive the estimate when it was at fault in this way the delay to which we had been subjected in the english channel was fortunately made up along the coast of spain and to the south of it the north wind held until we were in the northeast trade and then we were all right on september five our observations at noon told us that we might expect to see the lights that evening and at ten p m the light of san lorenzo on the little island of fora near madeira was reported from the rigging end of section eight end of chapter three on the way to the south